In 2018, when I was teaching in a public high school here in the city, at the end of the school year, one week before Regents Week, I was sitting on my sofa watching a movie one Saturday afternoon. I stood up from my sofa and I felt something shift in my lumbar spine and suddenly my legs and lower back started to spasm violently. I was in severe pain for four days and then parts of my lower body, legs and feet went numb. I saw my neurologist and he scheduled urgent spine surgery for me three weeks later. It was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life as I wondered if I would ever be able to walk again. I had to use a walker to get from my bed to the bathroom in my tiny studio apartment in Washington Heights. I had thrown my back out two weeks prior, but I had started to feel better and didn't feel like I had the time as a teacher to see my doctor. And then this happened. I went on disability leave from my teaching job for six months while I practiced walking first with and then without a walker. By the time I returned um, to my job in February 2019, I was still walking with difficulty as my right foot was numb. I decided to resign from my job four months later as the physical demands of a teacher and my commute alone had taken its toll on my body. I was devastated and wondered if I would ever be able to support myself in the future and I desperately needed time to heal. And then the COVID-19 pandemic happened. While experiencing quarantine alone in my apartment was scary at times, I did feel some relief that I was given time to reflect on my life and my new disability and think about what I wanted to do next. I had always had an interest in studying the Bible and theology and decided to apply to Union Theological Seminary for admission in the fall of 2020. I had not expected to be admitted to Union, but when I was accepted, I was ecstatic, and a new world of hope and promise was open to me. Now, having graduated from my three-year MDiv program from Union in May, I look back on that time of hopelessness, pain, loneliness, and have realized that I probably would not have gone to seminary if I had not gone through that experience. I am in, by no means suggesting that bad things happen in our lives for good reasons, but sometimes events unfold in our lives that do open new doors for us that would not have necessarily occurred to us to act on if we hadn't gone through an unexpected, significant life challenge or setback. The Equal Rights Amendment serves an example, I think, of the ways in which setbacks and disappointments can ultimately serve us well and serve a greater number of people as a result of the work, effort, and conflict that arises and challenges our single-minded agendas. The ERA's story is one of divisions based on both racial and economic oppressions that delayed its progress and also culminated in a larger and more diverse coalition among people with different lived experiences. Women's movements of the mid-19th century started a long and grueling fight to win suffrage for women in the US. The Seneca Falls Convention of 1848 is widely recognized as 
as the beginning of the organized effort to attain women's suffrage. 73 years later, after the first Seneca Falls Convention, the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, and women were finally granted the right to vote. Friends, I personally consider this fact that women didn't receive the basic right to vote well into the 20th century to be one of many national embarrassments and flaws in the history of this country. When I think about it, it just makes my skin crawl and my blood pressure rise. The journey of the Equal Rights Amendment has been just as long and grueling as the fight for women's suffrage. Two years after women won the right to vote, Alice Paul, the head of the National Women's Party, started a new movement when she introduced the Lucretia Mott Amendment, which would come to be known as the Alice Paul Amendment, and later the Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA. The bill stated simply that, quote, men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States in every place subject to its jurisdiction. Though the new bill was introduced in Congress every year after that, the ERA has also led to sharp divisions within the women's movements, which were responsible for par in part for stalling its progress. The more radical feminist faction of the women's movement pushed their own agenda for women's access to all opportunities in the public sphere. They believed the ERA would elevate women's status in the US both legally and symbolically. The other primary faction in the divide came from the reformist or social feminists who thought of women's interests beyond the scope of access to the professions. Organizations like the League of Women Voters, the National Consumers League, and the Women's Trade Union League leaned towards women's interests as mothers, and they feared the ERA would eradicate laws protecting mothers and infants, restricting child labor, and regulating the hours and conditions of working women. Many saw the ERA as elitist, supporting only the interests of upper, upper and middle-class white women who were mainly concerned with professional women's access to the public realm and had little interest in working-class women who needed protection from unfair labor practices. With the onset of the civil rights era in the 1960s, and the women's liberation movements of the 60s and 70s, a variety of new women's groups and feminist groups emerged to advocate for social change. As with the opposing factions that emerged with the first introduction of the ERA, disagreements among diverse feminisms and groups about the aims of the women's movements surfaced in the 1970s, which further complicated and delayed the passing of the ERA. Rifts between radical feminists who leaned towards showing the oppression of women as a sex class often neglected to think about the differences and diverging interests and oppressions of marginalized women with regard to race and sexual orientation. Many women of color chose to distance themselves from radical feminism, stating that feminists were, quote, spoiled and man-hating. Because these groups saw their identity oriented in their own race and the oppression they faced, as a result, many chose to identify with the black nationalist movement instead. 
The black writer Celestine Ware described the integral change needed in the feminist movement when she wrote in Woman Power, the Movement for Women's Liberation that, quote, black and white women can work together for women's liberation, but only if the movement changes its priorities to work on issues that affect the lives of minority group women. Other women like Audre Lorde, whom we heard from in the reading, who still identified as feminist, critiqued white feminists for their narrow agenda and ignoring differences among women. In 1979, at an academic conference, Lord condemned the, quote, arrogance of the conference organizers for not, quote, examining our many differences and for not soliciting, quote, significant input from poor women, black and third world, world women and lesbians. Another rift that emerged in the women's liberation movements hinged on the issue of sexual orientation. Once the gay liberation movement officially began after the Stonewall riots in 1969, some lesbians began to feel more comfortable asserting their sexual orientation, and the women's liberation movement seemed to be a safe place in which to do that. In 1974, black lesbians from the National Black Feminist Organization, or the MBFO, created the Kambahi River Collective a socialist black feminist organization that organized within the intersections of racial, gender, heterosexual, and class oppression. Betty Friedman, author of The Feminine Mystique and founder of the National Organization for Women, or NOW, referred to lesbianism in 1969 as, quote, a lavender menace, which threatened to derail NOW's agenda and lead the women's movement to being ignored and marginalized from mainstream America due to its association with homosexuality. As the gay-straight divide threatened to devastate women's liberation in the early 1970s, other versions of feminism, such as socialist feminist groups, emerged from the new left movement. These new groups wanted to dismantle a social system based on inequality and wanted to create new systems that redistributed resources equally. They also prioritized the needs of poor and working class women and focused on building practical programs that offered aid to these women. Despite these divisions, or perhaps because of this new shift oriented toward a coalition between women of multiple lived experiences and identities, the ERA gained momentum in the early 70s when the House of Representatives and the Senate approved the bill in October of 1971 and March of 1972. This progress created great optimism among women and feminist activists that the amendment would soon be ratified. However, the ratification on the state level began to slow in 1975 when 16 states defeated the amendment and it seemed unlikely that the amendment would be ratified by its originally imposed deadline of 1979. Groups like NOW and the National Women's Political Caucus managed to have the deadline extended to 1982. However, the amendment was defeated when in June of 1982, North Carolina tabled the amendment and Florida and Illinois rejected it. The language of the ERA was revised by Alice Paul in 1948 to state that, quote, equality of rights under the law 
shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. Though seemingly innocuous in its language, opponents of the amendment and conservatives made claims that shocked and drove fear into the minds of mainstream America. Two of these claims were the threat of women being drafted into the military and unisex bathrooms. Does this sound familiar to anyone? The conservatives' opposition to the ERA may not have been the sole reason the ERA was defeated. It is possible that feminist activists did not do enough to ratify the bill on the state level. But it is clear that a major obstacle to the amendment came from the rise of the new right, a movement focused around the family and conserv conservative Christian morals in 1980. Following this new movement, our country saw a great backlash against feminism and conservatives from the new right and succeeded in overturning many of the gains achieved by second wave feminists. The Equal Rights Amendment, as we have seen, was passed by Congress in 1972 and has been ratified by 38 states or three fourths of states in the country to date. As a result, many believe that the amendment has been officially ratified and should be issued in a pro proclamation by the National Archivist David S. Ferrero as the 28th Amendment. An OLC, or legal opinion issued by the Office of Legal Counsel, was introduced under the Trump administration stating that the amendment had a deadline of January 6, 2020 to be ratified. Conservative Republicans claim that the last of the 38 states, I believe there are three, to ratify the amendment came after this deadline. Therefore, the amendment has not been ratified. The Biden administration issued an, OL an OLC on January 26 in 2022 that affirms the power of Congress to remove the seven-year deadline. The deadline is not built into the language of the amendment, so it is not binding in Congress. And I'll add, we're still waiting for an official, um, the amendment to be officially recognized as the 28th Amendment. On their website, justicerevival.org presents those people who are expected to benefit from the ERA. It states, quote, the ERA will enable Congress to pass laws addressing pervasive problems like intimate partner violence, workplace sexual harassment, and pregnancy and pay discrimination. It will provide a mandate for laws and policies that support mothers and all parents in combining paid work for family caregiving. The ERA will also make it harder for government, the government to discriminate based on gender, applying the same standard that prohibits discrimination based on race or religion. The ERA will guard against discrimination based on pregnancy, childbearing, and parenthood, as well as gender. In the US and around the world, their website continues, history has shown that when women's rights are protected, their children, their families, and all of society benefits. Additionally, the ERA should be interpreted to benefit LGBTQIA community as well. Justice Revival's website states that in 2020, um, in a 2020 decision interpreting Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Supreme Court found that employment discrimination based on sex includes discrim discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. This suggests that the ERA could be given a similarly inclusive interpretation 
to encompass the LGBTQ plus rights. Um, additionally, the ERA would help protect women of color against discrimination based on sex and gender. This is because the ERA supports the eradication of intersectional oppressions that affect people of color, such as economic oppression and reproductive discrimination. Women of color are more likely to experience barriers to accessing reproductive health care, including contraception and abortion. Women of color also have a much higher risk of pregnancy-related complications than white women, and this is due in large part to the discrimination they face in the healthcare industry. It's hot. The ERA could be used to help ensure that women have made the right decisions about their own bodies, regardless of their race. The ERA also supports reproductive justice in that it recognizes discriminations against people who give birth as a form of sex and gender discrimination. Catherine Frank, professor of law and founder of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia University, states in an interview from 2022 that the US Constitution is, quote, the only modern constitution that does not have specific sex equality protection in it. We are living with, she continues, we are living with an 18th century constitution, and I think part of what we saw in Justice Alito's leaked draft in the Dobbs case is that so much constitutional equality jurisprudence is still looked into, locked into an 18th century way of thinking about who are full citizens. Though, though we amended the Constitution in the middle of the 19th century, she says, women's rights or sex equality rights were not on the minds of the drafters of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution as a measure of reconstruction after the Civil War and was intended to address citizen rights and equal protection under the law for former slaves and provided land to freed slaves as reparations, which was then stolen back from them by their former slave owners. Some of the major cases that hinged on this amendment were Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, Roe versus Wade, 1973, which of course was overturned in 2022, and Ober Obergefell and Hodges versus Hodges, 2015, regarding same-sex marriage. Frank explains further how the ERA would support abortion rights on a federal level. Quote, our Supreme Court takes the position that pregnancy-based discrimination is not a form of sex discrimination. The ERA would close the gap between pregnancy-based discrimination and sex equality by embracing a much broader idea of the social meaning of pregnancy. Denying abortion rights or discriminating on the basis of pregnancy reproduces gender-based stereotypes, that women should be mothers and at home taking care of their children, and that men should be in the labor market not burdened by pregnancy or reproduction, end quote. In our reading today by Audre Lorde, she speaks of the anger and divisions that existed between women and that surfaced in the women's movements and feminisms of the 1970s. In retrospect, these divisions led to greater inclusion of marginalized people who experienced multiple forms of oppression. 
because of the activism and work of poor and working class women, women of color and lesbian and gay activists in the 60s and 70s, more marginalized people were brought into the fold and stand to benefit from the ERA today. Today's service is not intended to glorify setbacks, disappointments, or major life challenges, or even to suggest that bad things happen for good reasons. Setbacks and disagreements are painful and often provoke anger and deep sorrow in us and are anti-productive and not often not helpful at all. At times in my life, however, I've looked back on some of the major life transitions I've faced which were far from joyful and comforting, and have realized that some of the good things I enjoy in my present life would not have happened if those life challenges, which were devastating, had not happened. We all live among heartbreak, disappointment, and loss. These are the inevitable experiences that every human goes through. And often these disappointments are in no way related to the good things that happen in our lives afterwards. But joy and comfort do come, and we can choose to have hope and look to a better future during our darkest moments. The ERA and the people and communities who will ultimately benefit from its fair interpretation was birthed from both single-minded conviction and the wrestling and divisions among diverse groups who would not, will not, rest until the promise of eradicating all intersectional oppression is realized. The closing words I have chosen for today's service are from Ecclesiastes. The first line reads, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. My intention in choosing this passage is not to encourage all to be patient and bide your time until measures are taken to eradicate inequality in this country. The truth is rather that we've waited long enough. In the wake of last year's Dobbs decision and last week's devastating Supreme Court ruling making affirmative action illegal, eliminating student loan relief and affirming discrimination against same-sex couples, the time is now to act to ensure that the ERA is birthed into the 28th Amendment of our Constitution, and then fairly interpreted and enforced. Friends, we have arrived, we're here, and it is indeed the right season and the right time for clear, true, and uncompromised equality.